Good morning, everyone. I'm Lerato. Um, I grew up in Lesotho and Johannesburg. I speak Sesotho. I am married and I have two boys. Yes, so just a bit about me. Today I'll be reading uh, Acts chapter 5 from verse 12 to 32. The apostles performed many miracles, signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple. They entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this, on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple, and the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Thank you, Lerato. What a remarkable passage. What an incredible story. You've got this group of people who are simply just explaining what they've seen and explaining what they've heard, and there is an obvious opposition that comes their way in the form of these Sadducees, in the form of these Pharisees, who are just totally uh, riled up by the thought that these guys 
would come and teach this message. They thought they had dealt with that Jesus guy. It's, it's such an amazing thing. They, they went and they killed him on a cross. They knew they had done it. They managed to organize his death in a very uh, creative way that almost made them not feel guilty about the fact that they had done it because they got it to look like the Romans had done it. It was a Roman crucifixion, but it was these Jewish leaders who had orchestrated the whole thing. And yet, a number of probably days or months later, you've got the same Jesus whose name is being spoken of even more than before. And there's a new kind of stir in the city as these people are beginning to grow their conviction that not only was Jesus alive, not only did he perform amazing signs and wonders and miracles, not only was his teaching profoundly life-changing, not only did he die on a cross, but he actually rose again. Shock and horror. They're scratching their heads. They thought they could shut him up by killing him. And yet, months later, his name is being spoken of more than when he was alive. Can you imagine how annoying that must be? How frustrated they would have been as they begin to try their best to shut him up. And yet, the word of Jesus begins to grow ever more. In the beginning, we saw that the apostles are performing signs and wonders. This community is experiencing a, a sense of depth and joy and, and love and life that is, is unmatched. They've never experienced this. This community is, is filled with a sense of generosity and, and, and love and intimacy that was just remarkable. Peter's shadow would, would fall on some people, and they would just, just hope that if his shadow would land on them, they would get healed. This is like unrivaled revival. You may have heard of the term revival, but this sense when God does something exceptional, and he's done exceptional things throughout history, he did something remarkably exceptional in this early season of the start of the church. And it is a wow moment. I mentioned last week that really we look at Acts as a pattern and yet an exceptional pattern. It's a, it's a story of God in the church showing us the highlights of what the, the church ought to be. We can't necessarily expect, I wish we could, that as Justin walked through, uh, anyone who was sick, just his shadow would pass over them and wow, we'd all be healed. We wish that would be the case. But it, but it doesn't work that way, right? That said, I uh, walked off the stage last Sunday. I preached last week and uh, I love preaching. Uh, you'll notice anybody who's, who's got a, a gift to do something in the life of the church, you can do it even if you're not feeling great. And I, I got off the stage on Sunday, and um, I'd had a long, long week, early mornings, late nights, nothing uh, other than just the busyness and the intensity of life sometimes makes you feel beleaguered and tired. And I got off the stage, and I stood uh, right about three steps in front of me. And Chris walked up to me, and Chris uh, said to me, how are you? And I'd just spoken on, uh, on hypocrisy. <laughs> so it's never a good time to be asked how you're doing. So I said, I'm actually exhausted. I'm tired and I, and I don't have much in the tank for anything or anyone. And, uh, you know, you can't preach on hypocrisy and then go, oh, I'm great. Thank you for asking, buddy. And uh, go, you know, with your big white Colgate smile and pretend everything's fine. And he said, I, I thought so. Uh, I'd messaged him a handful of times this week. We were chatting about the men's event, which I will have a second punt. Chris and I are dreaming up some exciting stuff. Men, I'm not kidding when I say the, the, the easy sell is that there really are epic prizes. The, the more important sell is that it is going to be life-changing. And I really want to encourage you, if you haven't put your name down and uh, really uh, 
prioritized it. It's one night, but it's gonna be so catalytic for so much of what we're doing. So Chris and I have been chatting, and he says to me, I, 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 yeah, I could tell, you seem a little tired. Um, anyway, I shared, I was like, yeah, actually, that's where I'm at. Nothing, you know, sometimes when you share that you're feeling tired, people are like, well, what's really going on? I'm like, no, no, I'm, I really am just exhausted, and I, I, I'm feeling beleaguered, and I feel like I'm letting lots of people down, I'm not getting to all the replies I wanna to get to, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, Chris kind of read my, my mail in, in terms of my internal emotional mail, and he said, okay, cool, can I pray for you? And I said, I would love that. Um, and I just preached on, hey, if I ever need prayer, I'll say yes to prayer. So I said, yes, I would love some prayer. And Chris's first line was this. He said, Lord, thank you for Roger, my brother who I love so much. He didn't say thank you, Lord, for Roger who you love so much. He said, thank you for my brother who I love so much. Honestly, in that moment, as Chris just said, thank you for my brother who I love so much, I felt the love of Jesus flood through my heart. I felt the power and the kindness of God over a very tired soul just experience a resurgence of joy, a resurgence of life that was just so profound from a brother who looked me in the eyes and said, how are you? He listened, and then he prayed, and he said, thank you for, for him. I love him so much. And I found myself listening to the story of the book of Acts, and we sometimes go, wow, that'll never happen again. I walked off the stage last week, and it happened in a simple prayer. It happened in a simple brother who reminded me that he loves me, and through that, I was reminded, not only am I loved by a brother, I'm, I'm loved by God. And it's carried me all week. I've, I've felt the sense of the deep love of God, the infilling of the Spirit through a brother who simply just reminded me that he loves me. I say that because I don't want you to feel like when you read your Bible and you read the book of Acts and you read about these amazing stories that are happening, that they are so far from you that you couldn't maybe participate in them and that you couldn't be part of them and that you too couldn't find yourself in so many, many situations where you are living out the deep and powerful community of God, where you're living out the mission of God, where you're living out the day-to-day, hour-by-hour experience of what it means to be partnering with God and bringing his kingdom forward. There's a lot going on in this community that may not necessarily always be signs, wonders, and miracles. That said, in this very front row, we saw signs, wonders, and miracles. We've seen them just this year. Some of you are still with straight healed backs because of, uh, of amazing prayer that happened in this space. We've watched new life groups. You think of the book of Acts, how new communities emerge. We've watched two new communities emerge just in the last couple of weeks. There's so much of of God's life. We look at this Ignite Carnival and new group of uh, high schoolers who've emerged. God is doing something beautiful and fresh, and I I want to remind you of that. Hey, we've had some people who've been in experiences of God's presence where they've, they've felt so encouraged that they can't but share it. I was chatting to Quinn about his experience last weekend with a group of believers, coming back with a fresh fire in his heart, a new hunger to know and enjoy God and to serve God's people. I want you to read the book of Acts, partly going, wow, that is incredible. Could we ever see that? And I want you to also read it going, wow, that's happening right here, right now, under our very noses. Can we see it? So we're going to just go through this passage um, 
and just systematically try to unpack what's going on. The, the, the thing that I probably would want you to understand today is that uh, to live out a radical experience of Jesus' love in your life, you need to understand that you will probably always face some radical opposition. And if you want to push back on radical opposition, the call is to have radical obedience. But here's the start. I don't know if you saw that in verse 17. They're doing all these amazing things. They're preaching the gospel. There's lots of power. And it says this, Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Have you ever just taken a moment to think, what's wrong with people? What is going on here? I mean, really, guys, you've got the best evidence ever. You know, a lot of people go, well, what's wrong with people? They just need more knowledge. That could be one of the big suggestions. If we could just help them, if we could give them more knowledge, they would understand and then things would be better. Michael Eaton says that's one of the most dangerous things to believe. Just, just think of these Pharisees. Think of these Sadducees. They were jealous to the point of shoving them in prison. They were happy to put Jesus on a cross. But let's just think of the knowledge that they've got. These Sadducees know that there was an empty tomb. You and I, 2,000 years later, trust that there was an empty tomb. I, I'm convinced, historically, there was an empty tomb. But it's 2,000 years later. These guys were the day later. They saw the empty tomb and they made up a new story. They've got the knowledge. They, there was no body in the tomb. They are personal witnesses to the signs and the wonders and the miracles. They saw the guy in Acts chapter 4, the, the, the blind beggar, uh, the, the lame beggar. They walked past him every day of their life. They couldn't argue with the fact that he was lame. He could not walk. Peter and John come and they heal him. And they somehow find a way, even though they've seen this, to reason it away and go, no, we still don't trust them. They were so filled with, with information that was available to them. They had the gospel preached to them by Peter, who was one of the most famous preachers. If you weren't going to be convinced by Peter, you weren't going to be convinced by anyone. They had every piece of knowledge right at their fingertips. They didn't need to read Josh McDowell's evidence for the resurrection. They had the evidence right there. They could have walked to the same tomb. They could have asked all the eyewitnesses, and yet they didn't. So the question of human beings is, is the problem lack of knowledge? If we just had more knowledge, would we all believe in Jesus? The answer, sadly, is no. The answer, sadly, is no. As, as one commentator reminds, the, the biggest problem with humanity is this problem called sin. It's a problem called sin. Now, I know when you think of sin, most of us just jump to moral failure, doing naughty or bad things. But I would suggest that sin is the subtle ability to exclude God from the stuff of life. The subtle ability, sometimes not so subtle, <laughs> let's call it what it is, but often it's subtle, our ability to just exclude God from the stuff of our life. I think of it, um, I, I'll share the story again in a, in a few weeks' time, but um, I think of how sometimes I'm standing uh, chatting to someone um, and and it's amazing. We'll be chatting face to face just like this, and another person will walk up and begin to chat. Let's say they walk up from my right-hand side, and they begin to chat. Every now and again, the new person who comes begins to slowly move their body. Have you ever had a chat like that? No. 
Yes. And they slowly begin to move their body. Now, I've still got my friend who I'm looking at over here. Let's call it you. And this person who's just come into the conversation is slowly moving around. So now I'm going like this. And I'm going, what is going on right now? You are slowly taking my attention away. And it happens more often. And some of you do it, by the way. It's you. <laughs> and, and now I'm like, what do I do? I was chatting to you. And now you've come and interrupted. And you haven't actually included him. You actually have taken subtly the attention away from this person. I think in life, sin is a bit like that. We walk in and we subtly try to turn the attention away from God and make it about us. We manipulate the environments of our lives to somehow produce a desired outcome that will suit whatever our desires are, whatever it is that we think will serve our needs. That's what sin is. Try to exclude God out of it and try to get me uh, to get what I want. We manipulate the environments of life. Sometimes it's the victim theme. We manipulate life to see how hard done by we've been, always hurt by others or things. We exclude the redemptive God from the story. We play the victim theme. I have had it so hard, and so somehow God could never. We don't see the redemption of God, and so we play the victim, and we try to get all the circumstances around us to see how hard we've got it. The other one is the victor theme. It's not the victim, it's the victor. We manipulate circumstances, conversations, outcomes to ensure that we feel always like we're the winner. You know that, friend. We, we manipulate our marriages, we manipulate our friendships to always feel like we have won, like we're on top. It's the achiever theme. Here we don't exclude the redemptive God from the story, we, re, we exclude the rejected God. We forget that God was rejected that we don't need to win every single thing, that we serve a God who was happy to come second so that we could be winners. Maybe it's not the victim or the victor. Maybe it's the VIP theme of sin. We love being the most important, love to be at the center. This was probably the high priests, their leader theme. They hated the thought that there was another one in Jesus who had come to be their, their kind of number one. They wanted to be the center. They wanted to be loved. They wanted to be respected. Here people are doting over a crucified peasant that they're calling the Messiah. The VIP theme excludes the resurrected King of Kings. Hey, all of us find ways to, to subtly exclude God out of our lives so that we can either be the VIP or we can be the victor and win or we can just live in our victimhood because it's more comfortable. It's easier. Essentially, we find nuanced reasons to exclude a God out of trust in, in, in him as the resurrected Messiah. Maybe you know your theme. Do you play the victim often? Do you need to play the victor, always winning? Or the VIP, I need to be, in, I need to be number one, I need to be at the center? We carry on. It says, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. getting overexcited. Can you catch? Should have swung it over my head. <laughs> they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. At daybreak, and, then, and, it says, and the angel said, go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. 
There's a new life in the gospel that's offered to them. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priests and the associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, it was secured, uh, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But we, when we opened them, we found no one inside. They heard this report, and I jump forward in verse 25. Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be asked questions by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Fun fact, our uh, mission, vision statement as a church is to fill our hearts and our world with the life of Jesus. We get it from this passage. This crazy accusation that's put at them that says, you have filled this city with your teaching. As Common Ground Bloberg, we would love just love some people to point fingers at us and say, you filled the city with your teaching. We hope they're not angry and filled with uh, hatred in their heart while they say it, but we would love people to say, I can't believe you guys. You filled this area. You filled Bloberg. You filled Sunningdale. You filled Milnerton. You filled Edgemead. You filled Malkbos. You filled this city with your teaching. How dare you? <gasps> Thank you. The compliment is huge. We hear you. We'd love to be accused of that. That's, where we, that's why we exist as a church. They were doing exactly what they were meant to do. Your church is meant to be a place of, of salt and light. I don't know if you've ever considered, Jesus says the, the church is called a, a, a city on a hill, and it's called to be salt and light. Salt was a preservative. Light was an agent of progression. Preservative meant it, it preserved culture. Hey, being part of a church means sometimes you're just preserving from, from getting worse, preserving from decay. Honestly, I would suggest that some people, if just from pitching up, uh, maybe your friendships and your marriages are still together. Hey, they're not where they could be, but they're not where they might be. <laughs> Had you not just kept in a community of people who held to some values that were, were values of love, sacrifice, and covenant. There's a sense in which the church is a, is a preserving agent, that the gospel preserves our culture, preserves what's good. But also, we meant to not just be salt, but also light. That we're meant to be progressing, pushing forward, bringing the kingdom of God forward through the lives that we live and the things that we do. I think that in the book of Acts, it feels like there is so much progression. There's so much forward movement as they're preaching the gospel. I think there's nothing more exciting. You probably have had seasons of your life where you felt like you're on the redemptive edge of life. You, it feels like you're walking into malls, you're walking into office spaces, and it feels like wherever you go, there's, there's some redemptive possibility there. It's like the relationships you're building. It's like your business that you're, you're starting up is, is a business just filled with promise and possibility. And, and, and your talents and your gifts are being used in such a wonderful way and it's synergizing with your gifts and you feel God's pleasure on you as you do this work. And, and, and the relationships you're building are beginning to become redemptive and you're helping people to see and, and savor the goodness of God. And, and there's a sense that you're on the redemptive edge. It's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't always feel like that right? You don't always say, thank God, it's Monday. Tegan, 
I've heard the term quiet quitting recently. Ever heard of that? Where people just basically, they stay in their jobs, but they resign from an emotional or interest perspective. They just want to get the salary, and they sit with their arms folded, get enough done to make sure they don't lose their jobs. And I think that there's a quiet quitting that actually lives in so many areas of life where we simply just get enough done to make sure that, well, the marriage stays together, the kids, you know, roughly do what they need to do, my friendships are okay, but there's a, a kind of malaise of numbness that has settled over many in our society that just isn't on the redemptive cutting edge of life where there is a sense of God at work and, and the sense that actually you're called, you're an electrician who's called by God to bring flourishing to homes. You're a, a physiotherapist, I was at the physio, just amazed at the work that Claire and Shannon are doing that you can make a difference in people's lives through the work that you're, you're into. It's amazing. There's so many opportunities in our day-to-day -day lives to be on the redemptive edge just by using our giftings, by being people of love. But instead, there's a kind of quiet quitting. Here you've got this, this story where these apostles are pushing forward. They're bringing light. They, they're being salt in society. But there's big opposition. There's big pushback. It's obvious, it's overt, it's straightforward. They are men who are powerful, who are doing a whole bunch of things to try to shut them up. That's the problem, I think, in our society. Because this opposition was so obvious and easy to see. It's just like, there, straight. They, they used a few very simple techniques. Humiliation, they put them in a public jail, they made a big spectacle of these guys, and they made them look really silly for believing in a, a dead messiah. They did everything they could to humiliate them. They intimidated them. They brought them before the, the most powerful of the lot in verse 27, before the Sanhedrin. They used their status. No doubt they're in all their robes and their garb looking very impressive, going before the judges of the day. They threatened them. We gave you strict instructions not to do this. They manipulated them. They said, you did this. Do you see that in verse 28? You did this. We gave you strict instructions, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You ever heard of the term gaslighting? Gaslighting is when the guilty person makes the other person feel guilty for doing something that they've never done wrong in the first place. You made me do this. It's when a, an abusive husband makes the, the wife look really, feel really guilty and, and like she's done something wrong. That's called gaslighting. You flip the script and you make the other person look like they've done it wrong. This is exactly what these guys have done. They've manipulated the situation. They've threatened them. They've intimidated them. They've humiliated them. It is straight there in the story. I wish sometimes that we lived in an age like that. Straight, you could just see it. Those five guys, they humiliated, they intimidated, they threatened, and uh, they gaslighted. There it is. We live in a culture that's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more hard to pick up, but the opposition is equally powerful. It's equally there in our lives, pushing back on living on the redemptive edge, living on this wonderful cusp of obeying God and experiencing his power and his life flowing through us. The problem is, is it's nuanced. It's, it's hidden in social media. Our humiliation is, is subtle. It's a thought that maybe, just maybe, you know, we would be seen as Ned Flanders in The Simpsons. You know Ned Flanders, right? No? Am I dating myself? He was the first. He was the, the cutting edge, the very first guy who was the Christian who was made to look like an absolute idiot, like the naive idiot that Christians are. 
Nobody wants to be like Ned Flanders. The Simpsons made a mockery of Christianity. They humiliated in a very subconscious and very powerful way. There's humiliation. So you, you don't want to be Ned Flanders, right? Or intimidation. You think of these staunch and intense atheists who come with an aggressive message, but they're out there. But they're actually in here, and one of my uncles, a professor, or my, my friend is a friend. And there's this sense potentially that the intimidation is, is distant, it's intellectual, and it kind of lives on the, the edges of our world. Threats? Well, the threats are probably just a loss, the threat of losing the good life. We think that if I really trust Jesus, I'll lose what I can see around me. I can, I'll lose some of the, the joy of, of what looks like the good life out there, what's being sold to me in so many different places. I honestly sometimes long for the days of straight out persecution. You just know exactly what you got. They hate you for it. They don't like it. Our persecution is way more subtle. But it numbs us and it puts us in a malaise of a kind of uh, apathy that leaves us just getting by, even quietly quitting. This is probably my favorite verse in the Bible. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. He looks at the powers of the day. He looks at those who are threatening to humiliate and to intimidate and to manipulate. And he says, God exalted him to the right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Have you got a life verse? A verse that you kind of go to whenever you're kind of bit down and it's your one? If you don't, here's a good option. This is a lovely one. We must obey God rather than human beings. Peter looks at the most terrifying people of the day with courage in his voice, filled with the Holy Spirit, aware of the resurrected Jesus right inside of him, right beside him, and he looks at them and he says, we must obey God rather than you. That's a really respectful thing to do, by the way. He's going, actually, I heard you, and I know what you've said, and I have seen you. Unfortunately, you are not my Lord. You're not my king. And so I am obligated to a much higher authority to push back on what you're telling me to do. Because what I've seen and what I've heard is contrary to what you're telling me to do. And so I will obey God rather than humans, no matter how powerful or respected you are. I want to suggest today that God is freshly calling us to obedience. He's freshly calling us to a wonderful, life-giving, joyful obedience. I, I want you to redeem the word obedience. If obedience has grown uh, stale like a piece of bread stuck in the back of the kind of bread bin that you haven't seen for weeks, and you pull it out, you go, oh, gosh, I've got to eat it, don't want to waste. Sometimes obedience is a bit like that, oh, can't waste, you know. Got to make sure I don't, you know, waste my life. Obedience isn't that. Obedience is the wonderful possibility of walking with your Savior who loves you more than you love yourself, who cares more deeply for you than you could ever imagine, and who has a purpose for us that is far more profound than anything we could come up with ourselves.
What makes their, their obedience unique and, and so life-giving? I want to suggest a few quick things. It's firstly that they see their obedience as present continuous. It's a living story. They're living inside of the story of God. We live in a world that's increasingly detaching ourselves from ourselves. We live through our avatars, whether it's social media or watching TV. We live actually almost watching ourselves, watching life. But it says here, Peter and the other apostles embodied in the story reply, look at the powers of the day and say, we must obey God. Today, I want to call you freshly to get back inside of your very body, realize that you and I are not avatars being controlled, and neither are we controlling avatars out there. This body, this life, this mind that God has given you is a wonderful, redemptive agent for His glory. You are a child of God if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you have huge potential to do the will of God. I have a buddy. I love this guy, Dill. He now lives in Plett. And uh, when sweet moments happen, uh, you know, maybe you're sitting out around a fire and you're having deep, wonderful conversation. And maybe a talented musician, not a terrible one, pulls out a guitar and they're playing guitar. Or maybe you have a, a, just a wonderful time with friends or you, you have a lovely ride and you're on the top of the mountain and you just pray and thank God. My buddy Dylan, he goes, hey, he, he puts his hands out like this. Do this with me. Put your hands out like you're about to flick your fingers, but you're not. It's like you're feeling the air, feel the air, and he goes, hey, this is it. This is it, guys. It's happening. This is it. This is the life, and he kind of feels the life. He goes, we're in it. It's happening. So often we live out of it going, oh, when did I have fun? When did I get to laugh? When did I get to do the will of God? When did I? He goes, oh, this is it. We're living it. It's here. It's now. I want to encourage you to get yourself back into the, this is it. It's happening right here, right now. I'm in the present continuous story of God. Am I getting too excited? You guys are looking at me strangely. <laughs> this is it. It's happening. The gospel is unfolding. 2,000 years later, it's alive and well. Their obedience is also unashamedly infused with the gospel message. It's unashamedly infused with the gospel message. This is not a, a kind of you know, progressive idea to make the world a little bit nicer. This is not trying to you know, fix the environment here or there. Their message says this, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. The message has substance, historical substance, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. There are consequences for, for our sin. We put Jesus on the cross. I don't know if you knew that, but Jesus went on the cross for future sin that you and I would commit. Maybe today's your day to realize that and come to Jesus and receive his forgiveness. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. Jesus is raised up. He has all authority. There's no better person to submit your life to than Jesus. He is king and Lord, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Peter didn't yet know, how cool is this, that this message was going to go beyond Israel. Still more for us to learn. Peter's still growing in his understanding that this is going to go to the whole world. That repentance, forgiveness of sins, a, a turn of heart was, was coming for the whole world. It's unashamedly infused with the gospel. If you've been quietly quitting, I want to call you out of your hobbit hole. 
I want to be the Gandalf in your life, and I want you to be the Gandalf to others, to, to walk to people who are hiding in their hobbit holes, living in the shires in safety, and call each other out into the great adventures that God has for us to go and to push back darkness and to bring the life of God to the world. That is obedience. Obedience is not just keeping it neat and tidy with your hedge perfectly clipped. Obedience is going where God would have you go. I was just reflecting on how many industries are, are here, and we're going to speak so much more in time to come, but we've got, I've had, just been at the physio, we've got people in med- medicine, we've got people in, in the film industry, we've got people in, in, uh, in the arts, we've got people in team building and finances, we've got so many educators, cheers to you, educators, have a good holiday, give the educators a round of applause, you guys are amazing. We love you and we appreciate you. You're under-celebrated. We've got tradesmen who are doing an amazing job against all odds. It is so tiring being a tradesman in South Africa. It's so hard to build a team. It's so hard to, to, to build trust in a society like this. Keep it up. We've got people in governance and, and politics. Good luck. It is tough. But we're with you and God is with you. You're on the cutting, redemptive edge. You're not waiting for Sunday to get your taste of the kingdom of God. You are right on the cutting edge of God's grace. You must obey God rather than men. We've got counselors. We've got medics. We've got artists. We've got musicians. We've got parents. We've got children. We've got uh, schoolgoers. We've got uh, varsity students. I've left out so much. You are where God wants you. Don't wait for your redemptive story when you finish work. So much of your redemptive story. You've got 50 hours a day, law. We've got so many amazing people in so many industries. God wants us there, by the way. We're going to do a preaching series in the next couple of months looking at what does it mean for us to take our work and infuse it with the gospel. Not just so that we can help our friends find Jesus or so that we can give some of the money to the poor, so that our vocations are infused with the meaning of God that he gave us in the Garden of Eden. Sound cool? And their obedience is empowered by the Spirit. He doesn't just say we must obey God rather than human beings. He then carries on and says, and so is the Holy Spirit. He says, we are witnesses of these things. They saw Jesus resurrected. And he says, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Just quick theology here. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who put their faith in him, right? Put your faith in Jesus, something remarkable happens. The Spirit of God comes and dwells inside of you. I've watched it recently. A person puts their faith in Jesus. It's like they breathe in new life. It's remarkable. You can't explain it. It doesn't make sense. It's glorious. Wow. But then he goes on and he says, God gives his Spirit to those who obey him. So here's the thing. Does God take his Spirit away if you don't obey him? No. God gives his spirit to you the moment you put your faith in him. It is a wonderful transaction. You trust him. You give him all your sin and your dirt and your rubbish and your nonsense. And he gives you his life and his love and his perfection and his spirit. And it is imputed to you. It's given to you. It's credited to you. If you know finances, you give all your debt to him. He takes and he gives you all his credit. And it's as though you never sinned. You are in the right with God. And along with that, he gives you an extra gift called his Holy Spirit, and he fuses you with him. But Jesus says, no, actually, you need to stay in the vine. So you're, 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 you're sealed. 
You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You will be uh, with God forever. You have the promise of the age to come living inside of you, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, says Paul. However, continuous disobedience doesn't push the Holy Spirit away so that you never get to be with Jesus forever. But what it does do is it steals your experience of the ongoing leading and enjoyment of God's Spirit, much like a, a sail that doesn't ever get put up. You're still in the boat and the wind still blows, but without the sail getting put up, you can't move forward. So yes, the wind still blows and you may have a tiny sail, but the call of obedience is to put the sail up and to go where Jesus is going and to do what Jesus is doing. And as you do that, the sail gets filled with the Spirit. You are sealed in Him, but this is Peter's call to everyone to put the sail of obedience up. And I'm not just saying don't do naughty stuff. I'm saying go where the Father is going and do what he's calling you to do. And like Chris did, it's so simple most of the time. It's most of the time so unfancy, Chris didn't even know what he was doing. I guarantee you, Chris didn't go. I was filled with the Spirit. Jesus told me to walk to Raj, then to ask him how he's doing. In fact, I think he was, I think I approached him. But somehow he slowed and said, hey, how are you? What's going on? I want to pray to just keep walking, to just keep loving, to just keep an eye open to the work of the Spirit. Put the sail up and keep trusting God that He will do a wonderful thing. I'm gonna call the band up and we're going to just respond. Our opposition in our day and age is different. It's subtle, but I wanna suggest that it is quite powerful. Sometimes hard to pick up but I think it's lulling us into a sense of apathy and numbness that I would call us out of, and Paul and Peter, in this case, would call us out of. And I want to invite you to put the sail up this morning. Put the sail of your own uh, courage and vulnerability. Put the sail of your own vocation. I've had vocation in my mind this week. Your job matters to God. There is so, you're spending so much time there. Yes, your marriage, your kids, if you're married, if you've got kids. But I want you to put that stuff before God and realize there's a redemptive potential in that. So much opportunity. You're going to face opposition. I don't know, there's not going to be any robed Pharisee who's going to come and threaten your life. But there will be some opportunity for humiliation, threats, intimidation in some way, shape, or form. And you need to spot that, you need to call it, you need to stand up, you need to look it in the eyes and say, I will obey God rather than men. And you go and you take the redemptive potential that lies in your space, in your life, and grab it by the horns and wrestle it to the ground and walk with the Holy Spirit and put that sail up to mix about four metaphors. Jesus, let's stand. You're the king. You lead us. You love us. You've called us. You've placed us where you've placed us. Just feel Jesus really reminding us that what happens in here is to set us up for what's going to happen out there. We don't sign off the 
register as we walk out, go, okay, did that, Holy Spirit. No, we say, come, Holy Spirit. We put up our sails. We put on the armor of God. We move into the world. We move into our time with family. We move into our day off tomorrow, intentionally resting because we are warriors in, in a mighty battle. Where intimidation and threats and manipulation will come our way over and over and over. How naive to think that that wouldn't be the case. Jesus, we just love you this morning. I just pray that we would receive your strength, that we would receive your power, that we would remind ourselves that this is it. There's no other kind of second life we're going to live. This is the one you've given us, God. These are the redemptive opportunities. These are the habits we get to shape. And this is the one body we get to live in, the relationships you've given us. These are the ones, the colleagues, the jobs. This is the one, God. This is it. I pray that we would move into the world aware that the God of redemption is with us. And you are making all things new. God's speaking to you today. Your trade matters, Dean. Your legal work matters, Cut. Matters to God. It matters to you, and that's a good thing. Educating young people, it matters to you, it matters to God. Your business and your employees, there is redemptive potential that lies deep, deeper than what you could even do today on, on a Sunday. God, I pray, fuse our lives, fuse our Sundays into our Mondays, into our Tuesdays, that we would continuously grow our faith to live on this redemptive edge, to push back darkness, to be salt and light in a world that does decay and is dark, that we would preserve what is good and we would push back darkness. Some of you need to come right with Jesus this morning. Eyes are closed, heads are down, nobody's looking around, but I would love to help anyone. I can't do it for you. Jesus saves you. Jesus calls you home. But I think Jesus is calling some people freshly home, maybe for the first time, maybe it's you've just wandered for too long and it's a homecoming moment for you and you just want me to pray with you. I'd love eyes to be closed, but I'd love you to just pop up your hand and say, pray with me, Rog, I I'm, I'm feel like it's homecoming for me. Pop up your hand, you can pop it down, and I'm going to pray with you. Wonderful. See those hands? Wow. Beautiful. Jesus, why don't you pray under your breath and Deep in your heart, you say, Jesus, I'm coming home. And I'm coming home because you came to meet me. This is not in my strength. This is because of your love. Not because I'm good, but because you are good. Not because I can save myself, but because you can save me. I trust that you died on the cross, probably the death I should have died. And you rose again, promising the life 
that I so desperately need. And so today I receive your gift of sacrifice on my behalf and resurrection that is mine in you. I receive that by faith. I thank you that you forgive and you include me in your story. This is it. It's happening. We're living in Jesus' story. God, bring us into our bodies. Bring us into your life and help us to become freshly aware that we are in your story. This is it. There is no other place. There is no other life we want to escape to. We want you to come to us and to show us all the life that you've got for us. As we sing, we sing together as a community of people who say, yes, we will obey God rather than people. We must obey God rather than people. We do this in your name, Jesus.